From KCRW, this is Greater L.A. I'm Steve Chiatakis with a show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. And I want you to listen to a few lines of this new song. I lay here in this bed With all these thoughts inside my head Minutes, then hours, then days go by Why do I even try? Now, whatever your opinion about it, and there are a lot of opinions about it on social media, the song called The First Step by a so-called AI singer-songwriter named Anna Indiana is yet another example of a creation by artificial intelligence. But what is AI's place in the art world, in music and movies, television, even physical creations such as paintings or pictures? Does it have a place? Should it have a place? With me to talk about the changing world of AI is Anuradha Vikram, curator, author, and lecturer over at UCLA. Anuradha, welcome to you. Thank you. Nice to be here. First of all, have you had or maybe heard any reactions to this song released by this AI singer-songwriter? I hadn't heard this song. I was certainly familiar with AI singers. I think this is the first AI songwriter that I've heard. Yeah, I mean, and and again, you know, in my question in, in my brain is behind AI is a person, right? Somebody had to have gotten the ball rolling to make this song happen, like entering it into whatever, chat GPT or whatever it may be, saying write a song about this, 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 and this, and use these harmonies. Is that is that how it works? Not exactly. So... There's nothing you can get out of ChatGPT that wasn't only put there by a person, but originally created by a person. So we can feed, for example, Bach minuets into the computer, and it can output a song that sounds like it follows the same principles as a Bach minuet. Uh, I recently saw a piano that was essentially a contemporary player piano that does exactly this, generates new music by classical composers such as Bach and Beethoven based on algorithms that mine databases of their recorded music. So there's nothing that the computer is inventing. It's reconfiguring and remixing at a pace that far outstrips our own ability to do this. But without human beings, there would be nothing for the data set to retrieve. So AI is not just the computers are taking over. There are humans who are operating the computers and asking it to generate certain things. Just fewer humans are involved in the process. Well, I think that the way the humans are involved is also different. There are actually a huge number of humans involved. So let's take, for example, the recent controversy over the um, data set called the database called Books 3. They have scanned many examples of modern literature, including many texts by authors who are currently alive and publishing. And so those materials are all under copyright. And these data sets often consist of other, of human beings copyrighted artistic creations or other kinds of creations and inventions that human beings have made. And the way that they're being assembled is not necessarily in um, a consciousness of what those the implications of that are for the people whose material is there. So there's hundreds of thousands of people 
involved in the AI, but they're not consensually involved in the AI. They don't have control over how they're being involved in the AI. And so our perception that we're being replaced, I think, is not exactly accurate. It's more that um, we're being manipulated and possibly used. And, and there's the rub, right? We've heard a, a lot about AI this year because of the writer's and the actor strikes that happened and, exactly. and are seemingly resolved, right? And it really focused on limiting its use in the entertainment industry. But this affects people all across the board. Absolutely. It's going to affect every industry, I'm sure. I mean, what, what interests you about the developing world of AI? Is it developing? or I mean, obviously, it's, it's – I mean, if you listen to the song, it's not quite there yet. But it's getting there. You know, it's kind of been getting there for about 20 years, and that's what I think is really interesting. In some ways, it's been as good as it's going to be for quite a while, and in other ways, it's made remarkable strides, particularly when it comes to natural language processing, the speed at which AI can now chat with us, and uh, the amount of time that we can chat with the AI before we start to really understand that it is an AI because the responses that it's giving us are strange takes longer now. So they are more convincing, they're more, um, they're more robust, and the, the mathematics behind them are quite spectacular. I think that I started to become aware of how AI and automation was becoming the new infrastructure for corporations, global corporations, about, I would say, yeah, short, shortly after the turn of the millennium. But now I think people are much more aware of this reality than they were 20 or so years ago. And it's been really interesting to see that awareness build through what are usually, I think, actually more kind of media, maybe even a little bit kind of press grabs than really true innovations. Um, but there, are, there have been incredible innovations. For example, just in the stock market alone, um, the kind of robustness that we see in the stock market is largely underpinned by trading algorithms in a way that really couldn't have existed 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I, and that's the thing. People are so afraid of this. I mean, it, it, at first it was kind of nebulous, and now it seems more nefarious, right? Like, like it's it sort of been demonized, whereas, I mean, we've been sort of getting to this point over the course of decades, we definitely have been getting to this point over the course of decades. And I don't think we should demonize any creation that's our own human creation. We are capable of doing great things with these technologies. We're also capable of doing terrible things with these technologies. Um, one thing that we are capable of doing with these technologies is understanding ourselves at the scale that we now produce information, which is much greater of a scale than human beings' brains can really process. When you think about how much information is actually out there on the internet, uh, for example. And so we're going to need these tools in the future. We're going to need to know how to use them. I think a lot of the fear comes from people not really understanding them and not feeling like they have the power to understand them. So my agenda is always to help people really understand. You're going to be moderating the panel. It's called Is AI the End of Creativity or the Beginning? It's tonight, downtown LA. We have information on this free event at our website, kcrw.com slash GLA. And Arata Vikram, curator, author, lecturer, thanks so much for talking with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. Take care. If I could be who you wanted If I could be who you wanted 
still ahead, a project that looks at how terrible a time the early days of HIV and AIDS were in L.A. For the people on the ground who are really trying to make a difference. That's yours after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Onward now with Greater LA from KCRW. I'm Steve Chiatakis. Back in the 1980s, the plight of HIV and AIDS in the gay community was not yet widely acknowledged. Homophobia played a big part in that. Attitudes, though, started to shift as groups like ACT UP demanded change, big change. The Los Angeles branch of ACT UP came together in December of 1987 in West Hollywood. Its members marched and protested and clashed with authorities, but eventually their advocacy work did result in meaningful changes, such as the creation of the first needle exchange program in Los Angeles. Well, now, 35 years after the creation of ACT UP LA, the organization is working on an oral history project to document the work of its activists from decades ago. I still remember getting kicked by the steel toe of a sheriff's. Who were really competing with themselves on how badly they could treat us. It was pretty brutal. I remember getting arrested. I remember that process. I'm being dragged back and forth across the intersection. We put her in the boys' van, or we put the girls' van, you know, and this being total dicks about it. Jordan Pimer is one of ACT UP LA's original members. He's now in charge of the documentation project. Jordan, welcome to you. It's a pleasure to be here, Steve. So really, the, the, you know, Act Up LA was really active for about a, a decade or so. What did that look like at the time, you know, the time of the protest, the time of not hearing any words coming out of politicians' mouths and, and such? It was a crazy time. Uh, people were dying, and that's the thing that just was heartbreaking, but it was also energizing. Our friends were... Uh, were, were, their lives were on the line and we were trying to do anything we could to get people to pay attention. There was constantly something. If it wasn't a general body meeting on Monday, it was a, you know, it, it was a coordinating committee on Sunday. It was a protest uh, someday of the week. Yeah, I, I mean, and the politicians weren't saying anything. And then, you know, and then th there were some advancements. Money started going into research and things started happening. You had AZT coming forward. You had protease inhibitors coming forward. And, and these things started making a dent in what was happening and in, in, in the death numbers um, that were happening because of HIV and AIDS. And I wonder, and now, because it's not a death sentence, Jordan, is that the reason why you created this oral history project? Is it to tell people, hey, look, this was really going on? It is, uh, it is one of the major reasons why we've created this project. It's also to remember that this is a vital part of Los Angeles's history, of Southern California history. It's a, a major uh, moment in our civil rights uh, the that this group of uh, mostly gay men and lesbians and 
came together and this was a huge knitting together of the um, LGBT community. And in a way, it had not been a real uh, firm community before that. Why do you think it's so important to document these stories now? Uh, well, partly because we're losing so many people. We've, uh, when we started out this group, there were, uh, there were five leaders. And this, this year we lost, uh, we lost two, two, of, uh, two of my co-producers. You know, it's, it's an aging group. So it, this story has to be told now or it's, it's never going get, it's never going to get recorded. We've been lucky to be able to get uh, almost 70, uh, 70 of these, uh, tr- these, these, trans- these stories transcripted on uh, 4K video, but we still have a long way to go and we're still trying to raise money to, to, to tell the tales. Um, and they range from anywhere from 90 minutes to Several of them are almost eight hours long. And what do you hope folks will learn from this? Just to just to put it all in context. Um, I mean, I, I want the context to be there eventually. I'd love somebody to be able to make a documentary out of it. But I want I want people who are going through this in the future. I, I want no one to go through this in the future. But I want people who are. Uh, who are looking at governmental inaction to be able to look at this, uh, to be able to look at what we did, and to be able to find uh, to, to be able to find support and and succor from what we have done, and to be able to say, look at what these folks did. If they can do it, we can do it. And by the way, it's not over. It still goes on. It People still, still goes die on. from HIV, AIDS, yes. Yeah, I, I mean, AIDS is not dead. HIV is still with us. And, you know, it's great that there's, uh, there, there, there's pre-exposure prophylaxis, but people are still getting infected in this country, in this city, you know, all over, all over America and all over the world. How are you going to present this? This is an oral history project, so the ear is required. Where will it be? How can you go see it? Well, the ear and the eye. Uh, we, we are doing it in 4K video. Uh, we have not selected a. Uh, we have not selected an archive yet. We are uh, in the midst of still collecting the stories. We've had uh, conversations with a bunch of universities and we're actually uh next next monday we're going to be interviewing a couple of libraries uh still have some hopes for some museums uh once we finish doing the uh, overall project we hope to have more than a hundred interviews so probably we're two-thirds of the way through at this point and uh you know, my guess is we have another two or three years left in the project. And then one of the things that we want people to be able to do is to look at it online. But we also want uh, uh, transcripts and uh, the, the videos to be available for study in, uh, in the libraries. And eventually, you know, maybe somebody will make a film out of it. Jordan Pimer, one of the original members of ACT UP LA, now working on an oral history project to document that organization's 
activist work coming to a speaker and screen near you. And we'll have more on our website, kcrw.com slash GLA, and we'll have a link to the ACT UP website. Jordan, thanks for coming on and thanks for your work. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure. We'll be gone now with Greater LA from KCRW. I'm Steve Chiotakis. The holidays are here, oh yeah, and as you prep for all the parties and the gatherings and the festivities, odds are you're going to be spending a lot of time at the grocery store. Produce. It's over your head, it's on every side. Mountains of veggies and fruit to the sky. Yeah, there's an old one right there. Today, there are a lot of options. Your run-of-the-mill mega chains like Ralph's and Vaughn's, but there's also 99 Ranch and Super King and Vallarta and Erwan and Mitsua and hundreds of other independent markets, large and small, to serve Southern California's very diverse and very hungry people. And one self-proclaimed grocery goblin has made it her goal to visit all of L.A.'s grocery stores, every single one of them, for social media. And the goblin herself, Vanessa Anderson, joins us now to talk about how this grand endeavor got started. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Steve. And you brought props, by the way, I must add. Um, you, br- <laughs> I love that you brought a little shopping buggy. Hey, thank you. Right? The little shopping cart with you. Yeah. What, what, is the, what is the idea of putting everything on social media like this, all these grocery stores? Well, um, Steve, I'm a lifelong collector, and one thing I found myself with a really big collection of was images of gr- the grocery store, people, products, little corners. So I set a few of these compilations of images um, to music, put them on TikTok, and you know, proclaimed myself to be the grocery goblin, which is a term that seemed to really resonate with a lot of people. I think of the grocery store as an anthropological treasure trove and a perfect way to get to know a place, kind of like a visitor center of sorts. There's so much information you can gain about a community from their grocery store. So um, I decided I was going to start visiting every grocery store in Los Angeles. What a perfect place to start. When you say there's a lot to be learned from a grocery store, local grocery store, Is it the people that are shopping in there or is it the products that are on the shelves? Is it all of it? It's a little bit of everything. I think it's the people. I think it's the products that are on the shelves, the products that aren't, what's getting purchased. Um, Oftentimes in grocery stores, you'll have um, newspapers, community bulletin boards. There's a lot you can do at a store um, other than just food shop. What does LA's slew of grocery stores tell you about greater Los Angeles? It's an extremely diverse community, um, and I think communities really place a lot of weight on these smaller independent stores. Um, for example, a really get good way to get to know Highland Park is to visit Galco's and talk to John. That's the soda pop store, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, after visiting and, and doing a short little documentary on John and chatting with him in the parking lot for like three hours, um, I learned a lot about the community of Highland Park. And I learned even more from the comments that I received on the TikTok from people who had been going there for years and... Um, really, you know, felt like John was part of the family. You interviewed John, um, and he talks about the soda pop and that he's gotten around the world. Here's a bit of what he had to say on your social media page. When somebody puts their heart and soul in it, and it's that good, and you know that it's that good, that's the important, that's the important thing. 
it's a tough economy, right, for, for grocery stores these days. Um, smaller grocery operators obviously feeling the pinch. Why do you think it's important for spots like Galco's and, and the smaller stores to exist? I think um, a lot of these chain stores, um, they offer a lot of convenience in a lot of ways. But what you miss is really the charm and the element of the grocery store being kind of the perfect third place. It's somewhere where you can run into a neighbor. You can have a conversation or maybe avoid eye contact and not have that conversation. It's somewhere where, you know, you can, you know, take a look at what's happening in the community as a whole. Um, And it's also these smaller independent grocery stores are often stocking products that these larger chains like Whole Foods or Erwan aren't. So you're really getting to know um, the products that are available in your local region. You're shopping more locally and you're just getting in touch with the food ecosystem in your community in a bigger way. Are those the ones that you sort of lean toward? You know, like I want to go to the small, the mom and pop shop. I tend to. And also I feel like I have the most valuable and thoughtful conversations with those types of people. Um, Shop owners, independent shop owners are the backbone of, I think, Los Angeles in general. I know you brought some snacks with you. Damn you. Why did you do that? <laughs> We've already eaten way too much food after Thanksgiving. And you brought baklava. I of did. All things. Where did that come from? This came from Tehran Market, which is a grocery store here in Santa Monica. Um, is that the one on Santa Monica Boulevard? It is. Yeah, yeah. And um, they also do an incredible barbecue on the weekends in their parking lot, which I highly recommend checking out. Um, but they're open, you know, throughout the week as well. So you can stock up on nuts and honeys and dried fruit and spices. And they have an excellent prepared food section. And they also stock this Sanam baklava, which is some of my favorite, and I thought maybe we could try some together. I would love to try some. I'm a Greek man, and I grew up on baklava. This is Persian, obviously, but with pistachio, so let's open it up. It's called Sanam baklava. So there's also a little bit of quite a bit of rose in this one as well, which is why I really like it, because yeah, yeah. I really like floral flavors. I can remember my grandmother just, you know, with a phyllo dough, and oh, this looks wonderful. Oh, my gosh, I can taste the rose. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Places like this are all over L.A. There's a reason why West L.A. is called Tarantulas, right? Mm-hmm. You know, these mom and pops open up because they're serving the people from those from those places. What other places, like Vallarta, El Super, you know, these other, and they're, they're smaller chains, obviously, than the mega chains like Ralph's and Vaughn's. Absolutely. Uh, Super A is a really good example. Um, Glassell Park, Highland Park, and a few other locations. Um, amazing Mexican supermarket with an amazing roast chicken in the back that they also grill in the parking lot on the weekends sometimes. So um, I think Los Angeles is the best eating city, in my opinion. I'm a private chef myself, so I think I have somewhat of an authority to say that. Um, New York, I would say maybe the best dining city, you know, like white napkin, that kind of thing. Los Angeles, it's the type of place you might eat in the parking lot, you might eat in your car, you might get served by, you know, someone's grandma. Um, But isn't that the best way to eat? I think it is. I hate to ask you this question, but I'm going to put you on the spot right now. What's your favorite? My favorite grocery store in Los Angeles lately has been Super A grocery store. It's my local grocery store as well. And I think it's really important to shop locally. Um, But it was one of the first places I ever set foot into when I moved to Los Angeles. And there's something really comforting, I think, about grocery stores that adopt this design element of having like residential facades in the store. So, you know, when you go in a grocery store, you're walking down the aisles and you're kind of looking, noticing these doors and windows suspended on the walls above the aisles. And it kind of makes you feel like you're in an outdoor marketplace a little bit, or at least that's, I think, how it's supposed to make you feel. To me, it is kind of like terrarium-like a little bit. And it just reminds you exactly of where you are. But 
when I moved to LA and I was, you know, really navigating a big life change, um, I would just kind of walk through the aisles of Super A and it was extremely comforting. And those very kind of kitschy design elements made me feel very at home. And the Trace Leches is delicious. <laughs> Vanessa Anderson, LA's very own grocery goblin on a journey to visit every grocery store in LA. By the way, you can follow along on our TikTok, which we'll have a link at our website, kcrw.com slash GLA. Vanessa, thanks for coming on, and thanks for the baklava. Yeah, thank you so much for trying it with me. My mother is probably horrified speaking with my mouth full. Oh. So what's your favorite grocery store? Do you go to different places for different deals? What do you like about your go-to spot? Let us know at that website, kcrw.com. Slash Greater LA. While you're there, tell us how you're doing, share a story idea, get the podcast so you can get the show on the go. All there at the website, kcrw.com slash GLA. And by the way, you can get the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Just search KCRW Greater LA. It's going to do it for us today. Tomorrow, homeschool enrollments skyrocketed during the pandemic. Well, now that we're in better shape pandemic-wise, I have so many LA families stuck with homeschooling. Hope you'll be with us tomorrow. Juliana Mayo, Zoe Matthew, Kelsey Gante, Eddie Sun, Sonia Geis, John Meek, Phil Richards, Sue Margulies, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Michael Vogel, and Christian Bordall all helped run the episode this evening. I'm Steve Chiantakis. Thanks for the time. Thanks for that ear. Have a great night. <laughs>